Now, a wildcard search on Anglo-Saxon itself, I love this one. Again, because it doesn't presuppose what we're going to find. This is in British English. And um, look at that spike on Anglo-Saxon England in recent decades. That should be the subject of a lecture on its own. Why has there been such a sudden rise in recent decades of conversations about Anglo-Saxon England? I leave that to you. Answers on postcards, please. Um, But if you compare that to American English, you get a very different picture over the same period. So you can see that Anglo-Saxon England has nothing like that same uh, rise over the same period, and it stays as a fairly low instance of uh, interest. And you may be wondering, what is that red one that is peaking at the top that has so much interest in American English? And obviously, you don't have anything that looks like that in the British English corpus. But there's something there that Americans are really interested in, and guess what it is? Anglo-Saxon race. That's what Americans are talking about over the course of the 19th century. And even though it drops into the 20th century there on the right going down the graph, it still remains at the top of instances of Anglo-Saxon. So the idea of the the conversations around Anglo-Saxon become less prevalent. But when it's mentioned, it's still Anglo-Saxon race, not Anglo-Saxon poetry or Anglo-Saxon England or Anglo-Saxon anything else. Um, That's what Americans are going to talk about. And um, and I just wanted to show also here, you can see that Anglo-Saxon race in British English, similarly in the 19th century, does go to the top um, of the interest, but then it drops right down again. Before long, the idea of uh, a modern Anglo-Saxon race, as they began to put it, emerged. In the early decades of the 19th century, Anglo-Saxons were this ancient tribe from whom these rights uh, uh, descended, but white Americans did not identify themselves as Anglo-Saxons. They were an ancient tribe. Indeed, today's ubiquitous American category of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, or WASP, which is very much taken as an inherited uh, term in America. People never think about its origins. Um, they're always talking about its death, the decline of the WASP, but never about its birth. Its birth is actually much more interesting. The white Anglo-Saxon Protestant has no purchase in the 19th century at all. um, A simple newspaper database search doesn't turn up a single instance. You can try all different spellings. It doesn't matter. It doesn't turn up a single instance. And Engram viewer confirms nothing until when? Until the 1960s. Why the 1960s? Well, I would posit that the term white Anglo-Saxon Protestant articulated itself in uh, relationship to the rise of civil rights. In the 1960s, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant becomes a way to articulate hegemonic white power. And until then, it has no traction as a phrase. Now, having said that, and as I said, I can't find a single instance of it across the 19th century. There may be one, right, or two. I can't find any. doesn't mean there aren't any, but it doesn't have many. There are earlier ones than 1960, which I have found, and I'm going to finish with that, but we have to work our way back to that. Because we still need a little more Scott to make sense of it all. In absorbing Scott and other medievalist writers into their mythologies, Americans mapped this history of the Anglo-Saxon back through the English Civil War so that New England settlers in the north of America became Puritan Saxons and Southerners became Cavalier Normans. Indeed, white Southerners before the Civil War were much more likely to describe themselves as Anglo-Norman than as Anglo-Saxon. 
as in this rather extraordinary article uh, congratulating three million Africans for divine providence, rescuing them from the barbarous savagery of Africa and delivering them unto the joy of being enslaved by Anglo-Normans. It's literally what that article says. Scott's writings rapidly became a national mania in America. Towns across the country changed their names to Ivanhoe and Waverly, while a vogue for jousting tournaments sprang up. It actually started here among English aristocrats, but soon, as with anything, it made its way to America. And this fad for tournaments particularly captivated the Confederate South, where it lasted for decades. And there are many um, examples like this, and this one um, invokes Ivanhoe at the end there with its mention of Lady Rowena. And this is where all of the knights wandering around the Confederate South started to come from. Young men would dress up in like velvet tunics with braided trim and ostrich feathers in their caps and go joust. So they and they would affect these titles, Knights of King Street and Knights of the Golden Lance. And so there were knights everywhere in the Confederate imagination. But it was something more than mere play acting. These tropes became an active part of how the Confederate South defined itself against an increasingly despised North. And it provided the South with a scaffolding to uphold its conservative pastoral nostalgia. Most important, the aggressive feudalism of these pageants sentimentalized plantation slavery, rewriting black slaves as loyal serfs, bound by devotion to the land and the family they serve. It also reinforced the cult of Southern white womanhood, their purity defended by gallant white knights. And then came the Civil War and brought all of that crashing down. After the war, as the white South nursed the bitterness of its defeat, seething against the enfranchisement of freed blacks, the old romantic idea of a local white knight defending the Southern way of life took a far more vicious turn. This is why the Klan always insists on chivalry because of the cult of medievalism. And you'll notice here also the cross of St. George as part of their iconography to invoke Anglo-Saxonism. Although the first Klan only lasted for five years, uh, as I said, its mythology endured. And in 1905, Thomas Dixon published a novel called The Klansman, a wildly popular Genesis myth for the first clan that actively draws on Walter Scott as in this illustration from the original uh, edition that shows him lighting the fiery cross. And this got the iconography going again. It, it re-stimulated the imagery. Dixon wasn't just popular in the South. He was popular across America. And um, his, his novels helped reinforce the white South's fantasies, not only of their innocence, but of uh, a kind of sentimentalized version of masculine white supremacy that swept across America. And it was so enduring, all of this um, imagery and iconography was so enduring that it informs many details that we see and don't even think about or uh, necessarily know how to interpret. How many of you have read To Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah, I figured most people have. Um, so uh, you might remember that Jem Finch gets punished in it for destroying Mrs. DuBose's flowers, and he has to read to her. And what does she make him read to her? Ivanhoe. It's a code for the lost cause. It's a code for white supremacism. And it was the Klansman, the novel, that Griffith adapted into The Birth of America in 1915, which sparked the rebirth of the Klan. I'm uh, winding up, don't worry. But I want to show you a couple of other things. By the early 1920s, 
Klan membership was skyrocketing, and so was the identity that it purported to defend. If you search just for Anglo-Saxon, you see far and away its highest use in American English in the 1920s, when the second Klan was also at its height. And guess what else happened? At this precise moment, the discourse about Anglo-Saxonism and white supremacy merged with our old friend, America First. In 1922, uh, Louisiana Klansmen carried banners reading America First, 100% American, white supremacy, race purity. Here's an ad. It was a recruiting ad, also from 1922, using the same language. At the same time, they acquired another name, um, which I could give a whole different lecture on. Uh, they also called themselves Nordic, which many of you will know the history of Nordicism. It was used synonymously with Anglo-Saxon, but basically in the same way that Hitler used Aryan. And indeed, uh, the word Nordic was popularized by a writer called Madison Grant, who gave the world the phrase master race. Um, that was a very useful contribution to world history. And um, Hitler called Madison Grant's book My Bible, uh, and based the Nuremberg race laws of 1935 on America's race laws from the uh, Confederate South and across America. Um, and in fact, at... Um, oh, sorry, so then in, in 1922 also, this is just the other example of America First, the Klan published a, um, a pamphlet declaring its ABCs, that is, you know, its basics, its fundamentals, and the A stood for America First. When you look at the, um, so I said a, a minute ago that there's no instances that I can find of the phrase white Anglo-Saxon Protestant across the 19th century, and we saw that spike in the 1960s when it gains traction. But I have found specific instances, and if you go into, again, this is just a basic newspaper's archive, but if you just search for the um, oldest, the, just the oldest first, these are the first three that you get, 1922, 1923, and 1924 of the phrase white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and every single one of them is in the context of the Klan. On that one there, right? So each of them is an article about the Klan. The Klan elicits this phrase, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Within a few years, the Klan had achieved its greatest influence, not in the Old South, but in the Midwest, where nativist ideas about Anglo-Saxonism retained tremendous pull. In 1923, an Indiana newspaper argued in highly typical terms that the Klan would not allow the country to be overrun by a set of people from foreign countries or to have their children intermarry with those of other races than the Anglo-Saxon race. The Klan was for America first and would ensure that a flag would float from every schoolhouse and a Bible would be on every school desk. A mythical identity had willed itself into political existence and continues to shape American, and world history to this day. So where does all of this end? I don't know. Like I said, history is just one damn thing after another. Thank you. <laughs>